We're going to continue our series this morning. Um, we began a sermon series on the Ten Commandments um, two weeks ago. And uh, by the way, Mike Chen, if you could stand up and turn around, brother. Mike Chen, why are you acting a little shy? We'll be downstairs in the foyer. This is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and he will be downstairs as he was last week with some information, brochures, and ways that you can be more informed and be an advocate and an instrument for God's peace and reconciliation in that area. So thank you, Mike. Last week was powerful because I asked some folks in our church to do something that took enormous courage just to stand and have folks pray with them and pray for them as someone has experienced and encountered domestic violence in one form or another. Today may require just as much courage because today gets to something so foundational, something so important, so critical, and yet something that we really resist talking about because it gets to the heart of the issue. We're on this sermon series in the Ten Commandments, and let's just jump right in Exodus 20, and I'll say a couple Introductory remarks. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's how the Ten Commandments begins. God giving this context. And buried in the story of the King of the Ten Commandments, we said it was the key to understanding the relationship between God's love and God's law. The key to understanding God's relationship between God's love and God's law. And what we said last week, if you remember, or two weeks ago, said that God's laws are not a condition for a relationship with God, but they are what? A? They are a? Oh, good Lord. (laughs) And that's so honest. She's like, I forgot. I know. We said that God's laws and God's rules are not a condition for a relationship with God. They are a confirmation of a relationship with God. God's God's, uh, God's laws and God's rules are not a condition of God's love, but a confirmation of God's love. We said the sermon said it this way, that that the laws were given, the Ten Commandments were given so that we would be in that intimacy with God and not to get in or earn acceptance. We asked this larger question, when are the Ten Commandments given? When were they given? When were they given? The sequence is critical. The sequence is critical. The Ten Commandments were not given to the nation of Israel. Why are they in bondage to slavery in Egypt for 400 years? God doesn't give the laws to the nation of Israel and saying, you're in slavery, you're in bondage. Now do these things because if you do, then I will free you. If you do, then I will deliver you. If you do, then I will rescue you. What does God do? God sets his love on the nation of Israel. God sets his eyes and his sight on the nation of Israel. He delivers them. And then as they stand before him on Mount Sinai, he says, Now that you're in, now that you're in this relationship with me, now that I am your God, not just the God, now that we have this relationship set, Here are the rules to live by. Do you realize how critical that is? 
It turns this whole understanding of God's laws and rules upside on its head. Because we said two weeks ago, and I talk about this all the time, do you know what happens to the Christian life whose perspective is one of religion or religiosity where they say, I will obey these things. These are the rules the other command God has given me. I will do them, and if I do, then God will deliver me, rescue me, love me, accept me. You do that. And you have a toxic version of Christianity. A toxic version of Christianity where acceptance, love of God is contingent, dependent. We got to earn and approve. And some of us are from that background. Some of us still struggle with that. And you will never know God. You will never know God. You'll always feel like you're hitting a ceiling in your relationship with God where you sit there and go, why? God feels so distant. God's love and God's law and the relationship between them is so critical for us to understand. We looked at, Genesis, uh, we looked at Exodus, remember, 12, and God says to them, I'm going to ask you this one unusual thing. I've chosen you. I've delivered you. I'm going to ask you this one unusual thing as evidence of your trust in me. He said, take the blood of the lamb and the goats and put it on the doorpost as your evidence of your trust in me. That's all it took to establish a relationship, initiate a relationship with this amazing God. Trust in me. Inside of your trust, put that blood on the doorpost. And we said, what, 2,000 years later, someone else comes along and he says, God doesn't expect you to obey and command. He says, I want you to do one thing. Trust in the blood as evidence of your trust in me. And now that you're in, now that I've set my love on you, now that I've chosen you, do these things. Is that huge? Is that huge? It's huge. It's huge. It forms how even we read the Bible. We said one other thing. We said that God's love was given for freedom and not bondage. If you understand that, if you understand what we just talked about, we read the Ten Commandments. We read the commandments as this is who you are, not this is what you have to do. Huge difference. God gives the Ten Commandments and say, this is who you are. This is how the people of God that I've chosen have entered into a relationship with me. This is how you live. This is how you live. Not, this is what you have to do to earn my acceptance. This is why what we said, why? And when we break the Ten Commandments, we don't so much break the laws as we break who? Us when we disobey. That means when we sin, in the short term, you hurt yourself and you hurt those people around you. But in the long run, in the long run, in the long run, in the long run, we hurt ourselves the most. The law of God is not arbitrary. It's not a basis. It's based on how we're made, how we're supposed to live. All of this is review, and I have to move on quickly. And so when we move against the law of God, we say, well, you move against yourself. And when you trample on the law of God, you're trampling on yourself. So today we come to the first commandment. And God says, you shall have no other gods before me. The two sins that God addresses over and over in the Old Testament, did you know this? Or what? First and foremost, idolatry. And then second, injustice. The two sins that God addresses over and over again to his people is idolatry and injustice. I don't have time to unpack. Just think about that. Just think about that. Think about our culture today. The two sins that God judges over and over again is idolatry and injustice. But when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, Two insights real quick and we'll move on. First of all, God is saying, God is assuming 
you already have a God that you worship. God is assuming that you already have a God you worship. What do I mean? The first commandment doesn't say it's really important that you worship some God and you let it be me. The first commandment assumes that you are already worshiping some God and that whoever's hearing the command is already worshiping something and the call is to worship the one true God. Did you hear me? The first commandment assumes that everyone that is listening is already worshiping something. That means that this commandment isn't a religious thing. It's not a Christian thing. Some of us sitting there saying, I'm an agnostic. I'm an atheist. I'm just kind of spiritual. I don't believe that there is. God is saying, that's nonsense. All of us have faith. You and I have things that we're living for. You and I have things that we adore. You and I have things that we worship, which literally means to give worth to something. You and I today have something that we're building our lives on. You and I have something that is our foundation. You and I have something that we're saying about that. That's what gives me life, meaning, purpose, and identity. Every one of us is already worshiping some God. And the reason why this is the first of all the commandments is what? It's because this commandment is the sin that lies beneath all other sins. We would not commit sins, commandments, break commandments 3 through 10, unless we are breaking commandments 1 and 2. But why do we lie? Why do we steal? Why do we covet? The simple answer is we're just sinful and weak. God says go deeper, go deeper, go deeper. What is the go deeper? He says there's something else besides God. That is your functional savior. There's something else besides God that you're saying to yourself, I have to have this or my life has no meaning. There's something else besides God that lies at the foundation of who we are, and it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. We would not break commandments through today. We would not commit adultery if Jesus Christ was our ultimate beauty. We would not covet if Jesus Christ was our ultimate satisfaction. Are you hearing me? You will have no other God. What? You already worship him. Then, then God says, you will have no other gods before me. Before me. And by the way, this was a new insight for me as I prepared this, uh, this sermon series. We think of, you will have no other gods before me. We think of this as a hierarchy, Right? What do I mean? God's saying, hey, make sure that I'm in first place. I even hear people pray, pray that way. Will you please pray that God, that I would make God a priority in my life, that he would have first place in my life. Do you realize what God is saying when he says, you will have no other gods before me? God's saying there are no places. There are no other places. God isn't, God isn't interested in competing against other gods. God isn't interested in being first among many. God will not be part of any hierarchy. Hello? Can I get an amen? He's not saying before me as in ahead of me. A better understanding of the Hebrew word translated before me actually is in my presence. God is saying, I will have no other gods in my presence. Well, all right then. Do you realize what God is saying? Some of this will resonate with you. God's saying, I'm not interested in sitting at the top of your organizational flowchart. Why? Because I am the organization. 
I'm not interested in being president of the board. Why? Because I am the board. And your life and my life will not work until everyone sitting around that board table of your heart is fired, including you and including me. I will have no other gods in my presence. So think about the next time before you go, well, can you please pray that I would make God my priority? And God goes, what a hierarchy here. Is that huge for you? It is for me. Remember what I said last week, two weeks ago, if you want to be free, you need to acknowledge that there's a spiritual order that God has designed for you and me, and that is this. You and I are not at the center of the universe. You and I are, you and I are not the master of our own faith. You and I are not the captain of our ship. The world doesn't revolve around us. Amen? And life doesn't work until you and I come to that place where we're going, God, you're it. And by the way, God doesn't say this because he's insecure. God says this because he created the world, owns it, designed it, works it, and says this is how things work. And the sooner we get on board with that, the sooner we understand how God designed life to be. True freedom. You want to be free? True freedom comes when we embrace God's overall design for the world and our place in it. Please understand what God is saying. God's saying, don't make me the top priority in your life. Make me the only priority in your life. You know, like, if that's what the first commandment is like, I don't want to hear the rest of it. Do you see why God says this is the thing that's underneath everything? You will have no other gods in my presence. You know what this means? This means if there are any conditions to our obedience, and I say this a lot in our church, if you and I go, I'll obey you if whatever is on the other side of that if is what? The real God of our lives. What does my life look like when God is the only priority? There are no conditions to my obedience. There are no conditions to my worship. There are no conditions to my service. The thrust of the first commandment is your heart wants to worship other. Listen, let me just put it this way. This is the reason why idolatry isn't just an issue. It is what? The issue. Why? Because oftentimes the heart of the issue, say it with me, is what? An issue of the heart. Do you see why? This this is why you act the way you do. Do you see why we feel the way we feel? Do you see why we do what we do and how it lies at the bottom underneath? First commandment, God says, you're already worshiping something. Those of you that are sort of, oh, I don't know if I'm, you're already, don't think of this as some religious term. You are adoring, putting your foundations on, giving your entire all, saying, because of that, I'm okay. If I don't have that, I'm nobody. And here's the thing we're going to look at. Because it, 
has that place in our lives. We give that idol enormous power. Do you realize what happens when you go, I can't live without that? That gives me identity. Do you realize how much power you give that thing in your life? And what happens? We get enslaved. We get bondage. Um, is God the only? Is God the only? Or is God merely a priority? The best text that I know that talks about idolatry is Romans chapter 1. By the way, here, here's a definition, uh, real quick, of what an idol is, idolatry. In case you're taking notes. An idol is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity. Idolatry is an inordinate desire, even of something good. And this is the thing about idol, idolatry, and we'll talk about it a little bit later. Oftentimes, the thing that we idolize, the things that idol in our lives, it's not in and of itself a bad thing. Success is not a bad thing. Achievement is not a bad thing. Um, wanting money and having money is not a bad thing. Career is not a bad thing. Family is not a bad thing. Marriage is not a bad thing. Relationship not a bad thing. But what happens is we make that good thing in and of itself and we make it ultimate. And we begin to say things like, God, you're top priority, but you know, this is, God says, not in my presence. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is so deep, y'all. Like, I, I, <laughs> this is so deep. Like, this, like, I wish I could just spend, like, 10 weeks just on this. I'm not going to, don't worry. Paul says that deep down inside, look at what he's saying. Verse 1, he says that deep down inside, we know that there is a God. We know that there's a God who created all things, who rules over all things, but we suppress his truth. We suppress it. We don't acknowledge it. We don't want to admit it. We do everything in our power not to. And the, reason, and the question is why? Why do we do that? Why do we, even though we know that there's a God who created the world, why do we suppress this? Why do we not acknowledge it? Why do we admit it? The answer is at the beginning of verse 21, he says the word for. He says it was for this reason they don't want to glorify God as God or give thanks to him. For this reason, they hold down the truth. This is huge. This is so deep. Do you know what Paul is saying? He's saying, it's one thing to say, uh, I believe there's a God. It's another thing to let him be glorified as God. And treat God as if he's God. It's one thing to go, I believe in Jesus. It's one thing to even go, I followed you. And another thing, to glorify him as God and let him be God 
in our lives. Do you see the difference? <sighs> the word glorify in the Bible literally means to give weight to something. And Paul is saying here that it's not that people want to deny that there is a God. Paul's saying they want to deny who that God really is to them. They want to deny that God is God. Can I ask you a question? Do you do that? Do I do that? All the time. All the time. Why? Because we want control. That's not, woohoo, that's awesome news. That's Sierra going, that's true of my life. And is it true for you? We know that there's a creator God. We don't want to acknowledge it. We don't want to admit it. We suppress this truth. Why? Because we want control. What do I mean? We want to live our lives as if we are our own authority. We want to live out our lives without giving him mastery. We want to convince ourselves we are bigger and we are more significant and important than we actually are. So we suppress it, we suppress it, we suppress it, we suppress it, which allows us to maintain control and live as we please. You see why I said this is so deep? This is so subtle. This is so subtle. I love it when somebody comes up to me and goes, it took me like four weeks to think about your sermon before I finally came to realize, like, oh, so that's what he's talking about. This is one of those things where you're going to have to chew on it, chew on it, chew on it. Not because it's just intellectually hard. It's because you and I have layers and layers and layers and layers of sinful denial. Right now. Right now. That's why y'all sitting going, intellectually stimulating, brother. That's pretty good. But at the end of this service, I'm going to ask some of you guys, I'm going to give you a heads up, to walk up to the mountain, the Isaacs in your life. Abraham and Isaac, the Isaacs in your life that you are holding on to. And listen, I've, I can't intellectually convince you and get to your heart. That's God, the Holy Spirit's work. But I am telling you right now, you are suppressed. If you're sitting there going, that's not me, that's a very good sign that it is you. Although deep down inside, there's a creator, God, who created us and to whom we owe everything. We don't want to glorify God. See, does this make sense? We don't want to give him weight. We don't want to treat God as God. We don't want to treat him as the important, supreme, central person that he is. Why? Because we want to be our own masters. We want to call our own shots. And even though when we look out and see that there is a God behind the universe, we don't draw the logical implications of that. And the logical implications of that is that if there is a creator God behind the universe, then I can't be my own authority. I should give him total and utter mastery. Are you beginning to get the drift of this? Although... You may believe God in a general way. I got to ask, do you go through your life as your own authority? Even though Hebrews 1.3, he holds the universe by the power word of his power. That means by a simple speaking, he is allowing your heart right now to pump. 
By right now, by the simple word of his power, he is keeping the 10 billion molecules that are in your body from just expanding and you vaporizing. God is doing that. And yet, we walk around going, I'm in control. I'm God. I know what I'm doing. I don't give thanks to him. Thanks to him for what? The word of his power. Let me take it one step further. If there is a God who created you, that means that God gave you everything, which means you owe God an eternal debt, an absolute debt. What do you give to somebody who has given you everything? Answer? Answer? What do you give somebody who has given you everything? Answer is everything. Yeah, what do we do? God, um, see, so I got this thing that I've planned out for my life for the next three to five years. Can you come and bless it? God, here, here's an outline of how I want my life to go. The reason why you're sitting there today and you're going, I don't want to be here. And you're mad at God, angry at God. Why? God's not following your program. Shame on God. He's not working on your timetable. How dare he? Doesn't he know? You see how flippant we are to this person who says, Do you work for his agenda, his goals, or do you take all the things he's given you, your mind, body, abilities, and your resources, and do as you please? They neither glorify God as God, nor do they give thanks to him. This one is so hard for me. The second way in which we suppress the truth of God is we don't give thanks to him. Um, How many are just naturally grateful? This is what I expected. Nobody, right? I was expecting somebody to go, I am. I'm naturally grateful. You know that verse where Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances? That's me all the time. I'm con- nobody is. Nobody. Do you know why? Why do we do that? Why is it so hard for us to be grateful? Not just when things are going well, but in all circumstances. Do you know why? We struggle with gratitude because deep down inside, we believe that whatever is good in our lives is because we earned it. We work for it. I paid my dues. God owes me. The moment that we think we deserve something, we stop being grateful. You can't be grateful for something you believe you're entitled to. I almost didn't want to preach this part. I'm like, oh, the whole weight thing, glory, that's good, that's good. Let's, and the whole, because I can't preach on this because this is, I am so terrible at this. Because unlike you, maybe, me, I look around and I actually believe that everything that is good in my life, I've gained. i work for it. And the moment that I think I've gained it, I've worked for it, I stop being grateful. Do you know why? Because if I think that everything good in my life is something that I earned for, I feel like I'm entitled to it. And the moment that I'm entitled to something, I stop being grateful. The greater my sense of entitlement, the smaller my sense of gratitude. So can I just ask a very honest question this morning? Because this is the default mode of the human heart. 
How many of us are sitting here this morning and just blown away with gratitude? Because we're going, anything and everything that is even remotely good in my life, I had absolutely nothing to do with it. It's by God's grace and grace. Annette, you were going to raise your hand. That's you? Well, amen, then. Let's pray and go home. Because <laughs> when you're talking like that, I'm looking at a bunch of 26, 27-year-olds that's going, that ain't me. Oh, no, that's not me. But we know, we know deep down inside the reason why even if you are the most in denial, self-righteous, arrogant, pride human being on the face of the earth that happens to be here this morning, even you hear that and there's a part of your heart that says, I wouldn't be where I am today had it not been for Jesus. And you know the amazing thing about gratitude? You ready? When you're grateful for something, when somebody gives you something, there is a sense of obligation. Do you know what I mean? Like she just gave me a gift and I, there's a part of me that says, oh, thank you. I owe, I owe, I owe you. I want to owe. I, you don't get a gift from somebody. Like my wife, if she gave me a gift, I was like, finally, dang, what took you so long? She would smack me upside my head. Because if you get a gift from somebody, there's part of you that says, I owe, I ought to, I got uh. But you know what? You know what? Here's the thing. So there's a real sense in which you owe. But it's not slavery, is it? It's love. It's not fear. It's love. I'll, I'll do something for you too. And neither gave thanks to him nor glorified him. We suppress this truth. We suppress this truth. By the way, two real quick things and then I'm moving on. Do you know ingratitude is the mother of self-pity? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Ingratitude is the mother of self-pity. What do I mean? How many of us have made terrible, dumb decisions in our lives because deep down inside, we're sitting around going, woe is me. I deserve better than this. I shouldn't be treated like this. Life isn't fair. Nothing's going right. Why does everyone want to get me? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? What does that give birth to? Small sins. Then bigger sins. And then we justify it. <laughs> Sorry. Karen, you resonate with that? Well, you know, I deserve to cheat on my wife. She doesn't pay attention to me. And cheat me like I should be treated. So I deserve it. Well, sure, I stole from the company, you know, but you know what? They don't pay me what I deserve. They treated me like I needed to be treated. We justify it. One more. You can't be resentful and thankful to the Lord at the same time. 
Anybody struggling with resentment this morning? All the heads should be nodding right about now. Because you know what? You know what resentment is? Resentment is, man, I really wish that person would get what they deserve. I just sometimes wonder if we just sit back. Just sit back and just ask, I wonder what would happen to me if I got what I truly deserve. You see why I don't want to preach on this part? You can't stay resentful if you truly understand that anything and everything that's good that happened to your life is purely by the mercy and grace of God. You can't stay resentful. <sighs> mm. What would happen if we got up every day and stood on the gospel, which is what? I have a creator God who created me. I owe him everything. I can never repay him fully for what he's done for me. And on any given day, I've never gotten what I truly deserve. (laughs) I've only gotten better than what I deserve. And because of that, everything I have, everything I receive today is a result of grace and mercy of God. How different would our lives be if we got up in the morning and that was the functioning foundational engine of our lives? Jeez. The mainspring of the Christian life, church, is gratitude. This is a way to me you could tell the difference between a real Christian and someone who's just generally religious or churchy is whether or not gratitude is the engine, the mainspring of their lives. You get up in the morning and go, oh, another day, it's a gift. Things are hard, but another day, it's a gift. Verse 22, got to move on. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And what Paul is saying there is that idolatry is not just wrong, it's foolish. Do you know the difference? The difference is this, sermon point number two, idolatry is not just sinful, it's impractical. That's what foolishness means. It means that the way you can tell whether your gods are false gods is that they can't actually stand up to reality. I heard this story about a pastor who visited an incredibly attractive, successful woman in corporate world, corporate, corporate business world, who was bedridden with terminal illness. And the pastor asked him, how are you doing? She said, I'm doing okay, I've got to tell you. And she said, this, she said you know, Realize that when you're lying in a hospital bed, you realize some things about life and about reality, and you don't really know what you really believe until you're bedridden in the hospital. And when the pastor said, what do you mean? Here's the answer. He said, well, if you get your meaning in life out of sex appeal, I just don't look good right now. If you get your meaning in life out of work and accomplishment, I don't have the energy to work. I'm bedridden. If you get your meaning out of something and it's not God, if his love wasn't the only love I really needed, if his approval wasn't the only approval I really had to have, if his promises weren't the only certainty I had to have, she said this, she said, I'd be ready to kill myself, but I feel closer to him than ever. The way that you know your gods are true is not when the sun is shining. The way that you know your gods work for you is not when the sun is shining or you're on vacation. It's in those places when there is nothing. 
And all of us will come to places in our lives when there is nothing. And we'll look at our gods and go, can you stand up to reality? You know, I'm an agnostic, spiritual, but you know, I find my friends, I live for my friends, I live for my family. I say this a lot in our church. How is your friend and family, that relationship, they're all going to die. How is that God going to save you when you see your God lying dead in a casket? How is that God going to come through for you? You see why Paul says, it's foolishness. It's foolishness. It's never going to deliver on his promises. And some of us right now can't see that because we're on vacation. Some of us right now can't see that because the sun is shining. But there will come a time when the sun is longer shining and we're not on vacation and our gods will be revealed for who they really are. And let's stand up to reality. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Third point, idolatry leads to slavery. It's inevitably so. Why? Two words that Paul talks about here. Worship, he says. They exchanged the truth of God for a light, and they worshiped and they served. Worship, one of the Greek words for worship literally means to prostrate yourself. And to prostrate yourself literally means to be completely vulnerable. Let me just give you a word picture. It's a powerful word picture. You have put your entire weight on it. You have made yourself completely and utterly vulnerable. You have literally put all your eggs in that basket. You've put your entire weight on it. You have made yourself completely vulnerable, completely dependent. So what happens? Secondly, serve. The word serve literally means to obey. You see the sequence? You worship it. It's captured your imagination. It's captured your heart. You've prostrated yourself on it. Put all your weight on it. Inevitable result? You've got to obey it. You've got to serve it. You've got to do what it says. And when it doesn't come through for you, I want to go kill myself. Does it come through for you? I feel like there's no meaning in life. When it doesn't come through for you, I don't live anymore. We worship it. We serve and obey it. And you and I begin to see why idols have such enormous power over us. We've come to believe that something will really make us happy, make us significant, give us meaning. And it controls, and it controls, and it controls, and it enslaves, and it enslaves, and it enslaves, and it gets our complete allegiance. We serve it, we obey it, we worship it. I love this quote. Whatever controls us is our Lord. 
The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. If Jesus is our God, then he is the one who controls. He has ultimate power. There are no bargains. You will either worship a created thing or you will worship the creator. There is no alternative. What are these idols? Let me just, in case you've been following along and you haven't left because it's just too uncomfortable, let me show you some idols that are in the 12 years of pastoring a new community. I've heard over and over and over again. You ready? Here's some. Romance, work, physical beauty, codependence. Ooh, that's a big one, by the way. I have meaning in life when I'm needed. I need to be needed. need somebody. Oh, you get the point. (laughs) Sometimes when I see someone who's codependent, this is why I'm a terrible pastor. I want to go, you need to be needed, don't you? (laughs) Certainty. Uh, I don't think I'm ever going to get married. Why? Uh, I just need to know for sure that person's going to be it. Family, money, approval, conscience. Some of y'all can't forgive yourself. Why? Your conscience is your God. You've broken some standard you have, and you can't forgive yourself. God says, I forgive you. You? No, no, no. God, you're good, but you know what? My conscience is higher. My standards are higher than you. Okay, then. Morality. Cause, ah. Please don't try and heal people to heal yourself. Don't use people to heal yourself. Independence. I don't believe in any God. I just do what I want to please. So independence is your God. I'm free. No, you're not. You're bound. Look at that list, and I'm going to ask a series of questions. What disappoints you? Look at that list. What disappoints you? There is disappointment when things don't work out, but there's disproportionate disappointment where we go, oh, I don't want to live. Um, What do you complain about the most? What do you complain about the most? By the way, if you want to know, ask somebody. (laughs) Ask somebody about what you complain about. If you constantly complain about your finances, money might be your real master. If you constantly whine to your spouse about your sex life, sexual pleasure may be your God. If you constantly complain about lack of respect in my workplace, what other people think of you might be your real God. You constantly complain about the bears. Well, there's good reasons there. Okay. In all seriousness, if you're whining, if you're whining, if you're whining, whining is the opposite of worship. Worship is when we glorify God for who he is and acknowledge what he's done for us. Whining is when we ignore God for who he is and forget what he has done for us. 
There's another question. Where do you make financial sacrifices? Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. What's your bank statement say? What's your credit card bill say? Another, what worries you? What worries you? What worries you? What keeps you awake at night? What's the first thought that comes to your mind when you wake up? A couple more. Where is your sanctuary? Where do you go when you're hurting? What is your emotional rescue? Got a call? Refrigerator? What's your emotional rescue? Two more. What infuriates you? When someone cuts you off, when someone drives too close, someone speeds up and won't let you in, why do you get so angry, Peter? Sorry. You know what I realize it is? It's the oldest idol of them all. It's the God of me. What are your dreams? Where do you naturally wander to as you wait for the bus or the train? when nothing is occupying your mind. Do you know what your God is? What do we do about it? Paul says the sins of idolatry is they stop worshiping God and exchange the truth for a lie. Here's the sermon principle. Reverse what it says. To be freed from idolatry in our lives, start worshiping God and exchange the lie for the truth. How? One. This is hard. Admit it. Can you admit what your idol is this morning? Can you look underneath everything? Can you admit it? Can you be rigorously honest? Can you say, Jesus is nice, but you know what? I need to have this because if I don't, I can't live. Can you admit to yourself what is controlling you? Can you be rigorously honest this morning and look underneath? Two. Unmask it. What do I mean? The thing about idol is, it's a very attractive thing. It's beautiful. It's why it's so powerful. But you have to see it as the ugly thing that it is. What do I mean? You got to peer behind and go, whoa, you're a slave master. You're a bondsman. You've had your hand on my throat for years. I could never please you. I could never fully live up to you. Can you unmask it? I'm going to say this because of the nature of this church. If romance, if somebody loving you, dating, is your real God, the worst thing, the worst thing that could happen to you is for you to get married. That's what God means when he says he gave them up to it. Do you know why? Because if idol romance, that someone is your identity, that someone is your significant, that someone is how you feel valid, when you get married, you will expect that person to meet all of your needs. And I'm going to tell you right now, you've married a sinner. And that sinner cannot expect to meet all of your needs. They will never. It's like that bridge that says, don't put more weight on it or else it'll collapse. Your marriage will collapse under the weight of your unrealistic expectations. That's why the worst thing that could happen, if this is your idol, this is your God, is for you to get married. You got to unmask it. You got to see it for what it is. Abraham and Isaac. Bible says Abraham loved Isaac. That's what happens sometimes when parents give birth to a child when they're old. But basically, Abraham was the love slave of his son Isaac. What do I mean? When Isaac was happy, Abraham was happy. When Isaac was sad, Abraham was sad. 
God comes along and says, Isaac is the idol of God in your life. I need you to sacrifice him to me. The Bible says in Hebrews and Genesis that Abraham wrestled. Can you imagine the agony? Parents, can you imagine the agony? Can you imagine the agony? All night, Abraham probably got no sleep. Abraham says, God's just going to have to raise him up from the dead then. I'm going to sacrifice him. God's just going to have to raise him up then. If you try and go, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? You'll never know. Abraham never did. But you and I know why. And the reason is he is pressing you and me to pure devotion. He raises his sword and God says, stop. Now I know that you love me. Now I know that no other God's in my presence. Now I know. You and me, God says, walk up the mountain. Lay it at the altar. And in case you go, well, if I do that, are you going to give it back? That's not your job. It's not our job. Our job, simply offer it. And God says, pure devotion. Pure devotion. And ultimately, But you can't do this, lastly. CC, come on up, please. Without rejoicing in Christ. You have to sit with the cross long enough to come to that place of Jesus. You're the justifier of me, not this. You're my peace, not this. You're my master. You're my savior, not this. And how do I get there? How do you get there? It's amazing that God ends his commandments, and we're going to look at two, commandment two next week, but he says, have no other gods before me. Why? He says, for I am a jealous God. Do you realize he doesn't say, have no other gods for me. Because I told you so. Have no other gods for me. Because, don't you know, he says, because I'm a jealous God. Why? Have you ever seen someone that you desperately love hurting themselves through abuse and addiction? Do you just go, ah, you know, I, I don't want to butt in. What do you do? I love you too much. I am jealous for your love. God says, I can't stand the sight of what this idol is doing in your life. It is destroying you. It's destroying you. It's got you enslaved. It's got you. It's destroying you. And God says, the reason I want to free you, I am jealous for you. I want you in my arms because in my arms is the only place you'll find freedom. Can I give you a word picture? But if you're holding on to it, it's hard to experience his embrace. Put it down. Put it down. Put it down. I am jealous for your love. I am jealous for your love. This, it's a process which begins today. What do I mean? <laughs> Anybody still struggle with some of the same things we struggled with before we became a Christian? <laughs> Thank you, Sherry, for being so honest. Before I even finish my sentence, she's like, that's me. Do you know why? You become a Christian, 
that idol, we chop that sucker down like, oh, it's gone, but the roots are still there. And idols and repentance is getting to the root and uprooting it. One time, Peter? No. How often? Every day. Every day. That's what repentance is. It's not, I'm sorry, God. It's, here's the idol, here are the roots. Uproot it. Uproot it. I got to uproot it. Every day. Every day. Every day. It's a process of bringing our Isaacs before God daily and saying, here. Here. Admit it. Unmask it. Rejoice. So here's what I need you to do. What I need me to do. This is an exercise that we repeat every day in your own way, in your room. Is you walk up the mountain. You lay your Isaac down. Say, God, help me to see it for what it is. And help me to rejoice in the salvation of my Savior. Find my justification, my salvation. So here's what I'd love for you to do. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm going to ask you guys to actually, if you feel so led, right on your pew, turn around, get on your knees as an act of surrender, as an act of surrender. Can you do that with me? Admit, unmask, rejoice. In this sacred space and time, will you be courageous enough right now to admit to God what your idol is? He already knows. Will you admit to God, God, this is more important than you right now. This is my salvation. Unmask, God, Will you help me see this thing for what it is? It will never satisfy me. It will never give me life. It will never deliver on its promises. Help me to see it for what it is and then rejoice. God, will you allow the truth of the gospel and your love for me and your love, your love for me become real? Become so powerful and so real that I can see the idol for what it really is. And you need to do this right now. Even as the fear comes up, even as the terror comes up, even as the discomfort comes up and saying, you need this, you need this, you need to be able to say, I don't need this. It will not deliver on its promises. You are my salvation. You are my God. You are my Lord.